So dependent origination is part of the Buddha's, uh, is a, is an elaboration, if you will, of the Buddha's essential teaching on what gets translated or what gets termed causality. And uh, because we're because of our particular culture, we tend to think of causality as being a kind of a linear thing. So, uh, like billiard balls on a ta- billiard table, right? This ball comes over here and hits that one, and that one hits this one. And these, these objects all crash into each other, and things happen through time. And um, the, one of his simplest ways of, or it's called the high-level way of describing it, um, is called this-that conditionality. Uh, and the way, it's, the way he puts it is that uh, it, goes, it, goes, it goes like this. When this is, that arises. With the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this ceases, that ceases. With the ceasing of this comes the ceasing of that. If there is no this, there can't be that. And if this fades away, that has to fade away too. So they're dependent on, this one's dependent on that one, as it were. Um, but it also turns out that this, this that that I was talking about earlier is a necessary condition for another this to happen over here. And so there's this chain of things which are dependent on each other. And none of them stand alone. So uh, uh, this is also tied very closely to the law of the idea of kama. Uh, at its at a, um, a bit of a a bit of a remove, kind of a thirty thousand foot view. Uh, when one speaks and acts with an unwhole with a mind. Uh, obsessed with unwholesome thoughts and ideas, then one will speak and act in an unwholesome way. Wholesome acts don't come from an unwholesome mind. Um, by the same token, if one has, a, has cultivated wholesome mind states, whatever words that one speaks or acts that one does will tend to be wholesome. Unwholesome acts and unwholesome words don't arise from a wholesome mind. But a wholesome mind is a result of wholesome acts and wholesome words. In other words, the the mind that we're experiencing right now in this moment is, as it were, the culmination of everything that came before. All the things that we've ever done, all the things that have ever happened to us, uh, all of our experiences are informing what our mind is like in this present moment. It informs the mood of the mind, our attitude towards the world, our attitude towards our fellow beings, um, our tendency to react either with fear or longing, uh, anxiety, jealousy, to any kind of a provocation. Um, it, it regulates the, the, uh, the tendency to react with kindness, or with unkindness, with generosity, or with stinginess, to whatever stimulus the world presents to us. Every moment of action conditions subsequent mind states. 
So if one says unwholesome things, or one can, uh, executes unwholesome acts, then for sure um, you could say you're like proving it to yourself that you're an unwholesome person or that you do unwholesome things. And that, um, that sets the stage for further unwholesomeness. So the, it, it, there's a certain kind of inertia or momentum that springs out of, uh, from any moment of uh, speech or action. Uh, this is a, a very natural, uh, like normal condition of our of our of our minds. So this is like the general view. Now the Buddha got into a lot more detail about what exactly he meant by these things. Um, but it's important for us to see uh, to see this in our own experience. If if you hear about it and you understand it in a theoretical sort of way, like if I say, um, uh, avijja pachaya sankara, and that translates as um, due, to, due to ignorance, uh, uh, fabrications arise. And then I say, sankara pachaya vinyana, due to, due to uh, Fabrications, consciousness arise. And vinyana, pachaya, nama, rupa, due to consciousness, name and form arise. Um, you know, you can memorize that, you can understand what it means technically, you can get into the translations of it. Um, but that's not really what it's for. What the Buddha's using, these te- what he's teaching about, is this uh, inherent. Uh, moment-to-moment reality of our minds that whatever we're doing, whatever we're saying, whatever we're putting our attention on is conditioning the mind that we're going to have in the next moment and the moment after that and the moment after that. Furthermore, uh, reality, the way that we ordinarily experience it, is... um, hmm. It's as though the reality that we find ourselves in is created by our minds. It's not exactly created by our minds, but without our minds' proclivities, uh, intentions, uh, experiences, memories, uh, all the conditions that have created the way our minds are now, um, we wouldn't be experiencing reality the way that we're experiencing it. In other words, uh, say you walk into a room, full of people, all apparently having a good time. A dinner party, maybe. Uh, And maybe you only know one person there, everybody else is a stranger. Well, you can see that your attitude, your beliefs about yourself, your previous experiences with situations like this, um, uh, the language that you speak, the culture that you come from, all these things are going to come together, you could say, or, or are going to inform how it is that you experience that situation. Um, it's not so much that the situation itself predetermines what your experience is going to be. Your mind largely determines what your experience is going to be. Uh, a room full of people can be seen as a, a tremendous opportunity to make friends, make connections, and 
um, have a good time, or it can be seen as a threat, as a problem, as a, a, a difficulty, as something challenging and uh, uh, potentially disastrous. Um, so different people react to different things because of the way their minds are in that moment. So you could say that their mind is, in effect, creating the reality that they're experiencing because of the way it uh, um, attends to things, the way it reacts to things, the way it interprets things. Uh, it's easier to see it in a social uh, in a social schema like that because we all know that human beings are are kind of ambiguous and they're they, they're nobody's a. Uh, a fixed concrete entity that's unchanging. You know, you can be, a person can be in a good mood one day and a bad mood the next day, and uh, depending on when you encounter them, they might um, be fun and they might not be fun. Um, it seems like the world of concrete objects, like this Kleenex box, this cup, they seem like okay. Well, they're fixed. My re- my experience of them is is conditioned by the external world, not by the, by the internal world. But even that's kind of not true. Um, look at this little piece of, of wood. It's kind of brown, you can see the texture of it. Um, but you're seeing it with your eyes, right? Our, uh, our eyes are limited. Um, many birds would be able to see colors in this that we cannot see. Uh, it doesn't mean that those Colors don't exist, but because they don't, we don't see them. It's as though they don't exist. They, for all practical purposes, they're not there. If you don't see this object, does it still exist? Well, we think we it's, we think it still exists, but we're not experiencing it. What we're experiencing now, in terms of that object, is now that you no longer see it, we're experiencing the memory. Of so the object, the object's existence is kind of ambiguous right now. Like if, if I had like some sort of a molecular furnace behind me here, and I just slipped it into the molecular furnace and it vaporized, right? It, but you didn't know that, right? <laughs> then it could like not exist in sort of physical reality, but still exist as a reality in your mind, right? And then when I reach back here and grab it again, you think it's the same object. Right? Because of this, this phenomenon called object persistence in our consciousness. Uh, young children uh, at a certain stage of development, uh, when they see an object disappear, you know, they see the object disappear, for them it no longer exists. And then when you show it to them again, it's as though it popped into existence magically. That's why they have so much fun when you play peekaboo with them. Right? You cover your face and you go like that. And to them it's like you just came out of magically appeared out of nowhere, peekaboo. And it's, it's, it delights them, it makes them laugh. But you can see that this, this characteristic of object persistence, like right now, if you think about your home, where you, where you live, in your mind it still exists, even though you're not experiencing it right now. You might be wrong, right? Your, your house might have burned down while you're here. Probably not, right? Um, but this phenomenon of object existence or object persistence is a mental phenomenon. It's something that our minds do. Ordinarily, and you can sort of see that, okay, yes, that's 
it's very handy to have object persistence. It's good to be able to remember, like, where you parked your car and find that it's still there when you go looking for it, and um, remember people's names and faces and all that sort of thing. Um, because it allows us to, to easily manipulate in the world that we find ourselves in. It allows us to survive and persist and, and successfully raise our children. And it allows the, the program of nature to carry itself out. The next generation will come about. And, but ordinarily, we, we have no um, reflective awareness of, of this truth, that our experience of the world that which we call reality is a mental construct for the most part. It's, you could say, grounded on the world or um, uh, referencing the world. But what we experience is really what's happening in our minds in, uh, as a result of those references. So, again, the, there's the wooden object. Now you're experiencing it with your with your sense doors and your and your mind door. You you can sort of see what it is. It's a piece of wood of a certain size. Now you're no longer experiencing it as a direct sensory experience. It's a purely mental object. Ninety nine or percent or more of our world is, consists of these mental objects, and we're constantly reinforcing our mental constructs by referring to the outside world and confirming for ourselves, yes, and my model of the world is true. This model of the world, you know, you can sort of see at this, at this physical level of objects uh, is very pragmatic and practical and there's no obvious reason why you should try to deconstruct it and prove to yourself that it's not true somehow. It is true. It's true in a conventional sense that it allows us to operate. Um, but it's... Um, because it's mental, because, because the reality is a mental construct, the reality that we find ourselves living in is a mental construct, um, it's there in the mental construct that we experience everything that goes wrong in our lives, what the Buddha called dukkha. Uh, dukkha is the unsatisfactoriness of our lives, uh, the suffering of our lives, the shortcomings of our lives, the restlessness the hungers, the yearnings, the griefs, the losses, the pains, everything that's not so great, that's dukkha. And we have to live with it every day. Uh, eventually, when it's time to get old and, and get sick and die, uh, if we haven't prepared ourselves mentally, then we have to experience a lot of dukkha. As we go along, we'll lose all kinds of people that we love, all kinds of objects and situations that we prefer. So the losses of our lives, and, the, and we'll have to put up with all kinds of things that we don't want. Um, everything from, from taxes to illnesses to death itself. Those things are largely mental. Just like the object you can no longer see is only a mental so the, what the Buddha is pointing out is that if you understand how the mind works, then you have the opportunity, the possibility of going in there and maybe uh, rearranging the connections a little bit, reprogramming. Reprogramming is maybe a good metaphor for it. The, the dukkha arises because of these... Um, 
kind of if-then connections of conditionality. So, if you see a solid object with both eyes, you will perceive a three-dimensional quality to that object, even though each one of your eyes is only seeing a two-dimensional image. Right? That's a kind of an if-then or a, a, condition, a conditioned arising. Um, the ability to perceive three, dimension, three dimensions is something that our minds do automatically with us not realizing how it works. We just take it at face value. We just believe what our minds are showing us, and it's very practical to do so. Uh, so what the Buddha was, was laying out in more detail in the, in the doctrine of con, uh, conditioned co-arising is the inherent uh, uh, intermingling, you could say, or the, the interdependence of each moment of existence with like everything that came before it. So, you, so in, in effect, you can't have the experience of this object as a three-dimensional piece of wood that's you know, I'm hiding behind my back. You can't have all those experiences if you hadn't already, sometime in your life, experienced similar objects. You had to do that in childhood. You, you, you played with toys. You had to touch it and put it in your mouth and get to really know it. Once you really know one of these things, an object like this, then just seeing somebody pick one up, you know what it is. You know how it feels. You have a sense of what, what this texture of it would be. None of it would be a surprise to you because of all that, all that background. That's, those are parts of the links of conditionality. The Buddha's pointing out the ones that are so dynamic. So... Uh, the ones that are really relevant to our immediate practice have to do with the linkages between um, our sense bases. So I've been talking about sense bases in the sense of like, this is something that you can see. If you were blind, you couldn't have this experience. Right? You couldn't see this object. And then the idea of mental, like mental visual persistence wouldn't, wouldn't apply. So because of our sense bases, we have many, many, many experiences of sense contact. We, we're contacting things with our body all the time. We're seeing things, we're hearing things, and our minds are kind of assembling that into an inner reality where uh, when I make a noise with this, it's clear to you that the noise that you just heard came from me tapping this object on that, on that surface. It seems real, right? And I'm not telling you that it's not real, but we can take advantage of that, and I can do this. Uh, um, uh, the same thing can happen in a, in a video. Right? A video is a series of two-dimensional images displayed on a screen. And a, a coordinated audio track, which is a series of recorded electronic vibrations which get converted into air vibrations that we can hear. Right? So you can see a video of somebody doing just like that, and it seems very, very real. It has the same sense of like that's those two, um, those two things are connected with each other. There's a whole industry of sound effects in the in the film industry, as kind of a sub industry, if you will, of making sounds coordinate with actions that are happening in the film. So when the actor closes the car door, 
kind of like no matter what that actually sounds like, they substitute in a car door closing sound, and your brain puts it all together, and it seems all very coordinated and all very proper. If the timing's off just a little bit, you catch it. It's like when someone's lip syncing and they're not quite on target. You'll notice it right away because your, your brain has a pre-set uh, up expectation of how things work. And if that's uh, uh, not met, then you notice it right away. So because of sense contact, we experience um, feeling. Like we experience pleasant and unpleasant. The things that we, we enjoy seeing, things we don't enjoy seeing, and hearing, and tasting, and touching. Um, the pleasantness and the unpleasantness of our experiences causes us to, causes us to either sort of uh, like lean, incline away from or incline towards. So if we hear like a beautiful tune in the distance, oh, what's that music? And we try to, we try to hear it so we can enjoy it more. If we see some beautiful person walk by, oh, watch another beautiful person going by. Or if we see like a beautiful animal, you know, like a, a really magnificent deer striding across the lawn, oh, look, you know, because it's, it's pleasant to look at, at pleasant objects. It's pleasant to hear pleasant sounds. We take the pleasant as, a, as a, an impetus to try to get more of that thing. And we take the unpleasant as an impetus to try to get less of that thing. We're, we're constantly under a barrage of pleasant and unpleasant because we have sense doors. If we didn't have sense doors, we wouldn't have contact with the unpleasant and the pleasant. Right? If we couldn't see, we would never see pleasant objects, we would never see unpleasant objects. And so we wouldn't be subject to the pleasant and the unpleasant. Well, the pleasant and the unpleasant, because of it, and because we don't know how the mind works, when something pleasant comes along or unpleasant comes along, we tend to, we, like there's this kind of wanting that comes up which makes us inclined towards or away from one or the other, depending on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That inclination is called uh, craving. And it doesn't even have to be like a real-time object. That, like, we don't have to actually see something that's, that's pleasant. We can simply remember something that once was pleasant, like chocolate cake. Right? If, if something was once pleasant, we can, we can bring it up in our minds, and then we can generate like desire for it. Right? And if that desire is strong enough, we'll actually undertake action to obtain that thing. That's clinging. Right? So now, we're, now we've kind of like created this reality where the, the as-yet-not-existing chocolate cake needs to be brought into existence so that I can get the pleasure of that, of that contact. So if that pursuit of the chocolate cake is in any way frustrated, then that'll be unpleasant because the thing that you wanted is being you know, frustrated. Um, so that is a, a trivial example, but, but the point is that we're always being driven around by the pleasant and the unpleasant. And we're, it's happening like unconsciously, for the most part. We're usually not aware that we're doing what we do because of pleasant and unpleasant contacts. So if you're trying to sit very peacefully, or if you're watching a movie or something, and your leg starts to fall asleep, you'll, you'll adjust your posture without even realizing that you did it. If uh, something um, you start hearing an unpleasant sound, you'll sort of kind of cringe away from it, maybe move your head a little bit, uh, if you see something you don't like to see, you might just 
avoided scathes, right? So we're, uh, and when we wake up in the morning, what happens is we start to think about all the things that we have to do or we could do or how much I need a cup of coffee. And, and those are all mental objects, but they, they set us going on our whole day and we, we kind of follow these mental objects around all day long, trying to fulfill our obligations so that we won't feel bad about not doing what we're supposed to do, trying to get what we need to feel comfortable and safe and, and secure and loved and all the other things that we want out of our lives. And we don't ordinarily realize that that's just a purely mental, uh, mostly a mental process that's happening there. If anything goes wrong, if we wake up one morning and we're paralyzed from the neck down, boy, are we in trouble. You know, like It's a disaster because all of our mental objects can't be fulfilled now and a whole bunch of fearsome mental objects will start coming up because of this, this dire condition of not being able to get out of bed. Um, and you know, panic could come, all kinds of negative emotions could come up because of things not going the way that you want them to go. They're not really under your control, right? At any moment, you could be you know, struck down with some aneurysm or stroke or something like that. So, so we don't ordinarily think about that. We just sort of go through our lives pursuing the pleasant, trying to avoid the unpleasant, trying to do what our mental objects are telling us to do. When you practice the Buddhist practice, the Eightfold Noble Path. Um, part of it is this process of meditation. The Buddha called it uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When you, when you take on these steps of the path, you start to get a sense of what it is that I'm talking about, that this whole aspect, of the whole mental aspect of the world that we live in. Most everything that we experience is happening, you can say, in the theater of the mind. When you close your eyes and you look inside and get the mind to be very still, you start to see how, yes, contact is either pleasant or unpleasant. You know, like if your knee starts to hurt, there's there's the sensation of pain and there's this other thing that's called unpleasant. They're actually kind of separable from each other. It's possible to notice that there's a sensation and then right alongside it, I'm kind of mixed in with it, but still kind of separable, is the unpleasant quality of it. And then the, I can see that the mind is reacting to the unpleasant quality of it. So when you see for yourself that the mind reacts to the unpleasant in a certain way, it informs you about everything you've ever reacted to, right? You see, that's just how the mind is. It just, it just reacts. It doesn't like the unpleasant. It's programmed not to. In fact, that's how you can tell something is, is unpleasant. It's because the mind is reacting in a certain way. So uh, it, this is, seeing this sort of thing is called insight. It's a development of wisdom. And the, the more clearly you see it, the more deeply you see it, the more sort of thoroughgoingly you see it, uh, the, the easier it is for you to, mm, in effect, let go of how, how tightly you're clinging to your beliefs about uh, who you are, what you need to get out of life, uh, what's going on in the world. 
because that, that aspect of mental clinging is the cause of suffering. This is what the Buddha is saying in the, the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering or unsatisfactoriness. The cause is clinging, and it's possible to let go of this clinging and bring that suffering to an end. And the way to do that is the Eightfold Noble Path. Those are the Four Noble Truths. So meditation shows you the second and the third noble truth right now in your own experience, moment after moment after moment. And the more closely you look at it, the more you sort of let that sink in, um, the more you start to notice that there's, there's some wiggle room in there that you didn't really realize that was there. You start to see, oh, I don't have to cling. Clinging is a volitional, is a choice. And so you see, well, maybe I can just let this one go. And once you've let one thing go, like, you know, I really have to have that chocolate cake, you know. And, but you see, oh, I'm just causing myself suffering by wanting something that I can't have. No, I just let it go. Once you find that you can do that, then like another door opens, right? You're no longer, you know, peace is no longer uh, dependent on you getting what you want out of the world or avoiding what you don't want. You can have peace and contentment and happiness uh, in all kinds of different circumstances as long as the mind's not clinging. Right? So you see that the key to, the, to, the key to life, the key to getting what you always wanted, is not arranging the circumstances so that you can have everything just perfect, which is what mostly we try to do. That's the, the habit, that's our training, that's our culture, that's everybody's culture. You know. Uh, the, the Buddha called it the eight worldly winds that are blowing human beings around. Um, praise and blame, gain and loss, uh, fame and infamy, and uh, pleasure and pain. Right? So those things are kind of, those pluses and minuses are just pushing everybody around all the time, you know, all their lives. And if you never look inside, you don't realize that's what's going on. Once you do look inside and you start to see these things, you can see that they're, they're causal. In other words, the mind moves because of pleasant and unpleasant and because of a belief in the necessity of moving. If there wasn't that belief there or if those contexts didn't come along, the pleasant and the unpleasant didn't come along, the mind would just sort of hold still. It would just be very peaceful and not get pushed around. It only moves because of something else is happening. Right? The perception of any experience, any kind of a perception. You know, if I hold something up, now there's a perception of a book. Right? It only happens because of sense contact. The book, the book as book, as an as an inner experience, doesn't happen by itself. It isn't like some sort of fact factor of reality. It's something that happens in the mind, and it's a conditioned reality. So. This starts to loosen basically this, the belief, if you will, that uh, things have an independent existence. We see that things, what we call things, exist only because, in effect, we believe they exist. Right? We, we assign existence as a, as a feature to phenomena that we experience with our senses. And that assignation of this characteristic of existence is something that we're doing with our minds. And that applies also to the existence of me, right here in the middle of everything. 
right? This me that we experience as the internal person to whom things happen is also a mental construct. And we get to see that because we're doing this practice, right? So the mental construct being just a mental construct is also amenable to this process of seeing, understanding, letting go, freedom from suffering. They're, they're connected together. That's why conditioned, Buddhist teachings on the, on the condition co-arising is important because it leads to freedom if you understand it and you can use it skillfully. Um, the links that are really important for your practice or for practice in a daily practical level is seeing how contact leads to feeling. Feeling leads to uh, tanha or, or uh, wanting. It's called a craving. Craving leads to clinging, like sort of reifying something and then sort of holding on to it, this mental object that we're holding on to, the, the possibility of chocolate cake. Clinging leads to suffering. Even if you get the chocolate cake, then now you get to feel bad that you ate the entire chocolate cake. Or um, the chocolate cake that you enjoyed, now it's gone. And you don't really want it anymore, so now you got to go look for something else. It doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to happiness. It just leads to more of the same. So when you see those particular links then you're motivated to kind of like look for well, what's, the, what's the alternative here? And that's what the practice leads to, is it shows you the alternative. The way the links, the way the links get broken is by, because of your seeing deeply into how the mind creates reality and how it causes itself to suffer, um, your, like, let's call it your heretofore non-understanding of that truth fades away. It's called the fading away of ignorance, right? Until you see it for yourself, you kind of don't know, right? And, and the technical term is avija, not knowing, sometimes translated as ignorance. Um, but it's not a pejorative term, it's merely descriptive, right? Once you see and you know, okay, now you're educated, now you see how it works. And um, you can use that knowledge to free yourself from suffering. The other aspects of dependent origination have to do with um, how um, clinging leads to what's called becoming. And becoming uh, leads to birth, and birth leads to death. Uh, uh, okay, well these things are all true, but they're, they're, less, um, they're less obvious when you're sitting there with your eyes closed. Right? When you're sitting there with your eyes closed doing your practice, you're, you're trying to see like what's happening right now. You know, the breath is touching the nose. Someone opens the door. Someone coughs. There's contact at the ear. The mind's reacting. What's happening right now? Not about like, when am I going to die? Or what will I die of? Or, you know, that sort of thing. That kind of thing is not um, what you're doing when you're practicing like that. It's worthwhile reflecting on those things from time to time to help keep you grounded in the reality of your mortality. Because it's easy to get uh, the impression that you're going to live forever. After all, so far so good, right? <laughs> Haven't died yet. <laughs> so maybe it does go on forever. 
So it's, but it's easy to just kind of lose track of, no, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, we're all going to have to die. No one wants to think about it because it's not pleasant. But if you, if you reflect on it, you realize, okay, that's just part of the, the nature of being a human being, then it helps you keep your priorities straight. But the freedom is found in those, those, those kind of middle links of dependent origination. Those are, are the ones that you can actually investigate moment-to-moment uh, -moment directly in your, in your immediate experience. As practice progresses, as uh, one's mind becomes more powerful, one's insight becomes more deep, then, yeah, those other links come into play as well. You actually get to see how becoming, Bawo, uh, is a kind of, a, it's, uh, it's the reification of the self, being somebody, being who I am, being in, uh, any kind of an identity that you can take off, so take on. So if, you're, if you visit your parents, now you're, now you're an, uh, an offspring. Now, if you're, if you're dealing with your children, now you're a parent, right? So you become the person that you are in any given circumstance because of the mind's reaction to what circumstances it finds itself in. If you're, if you're suffering a physical injury, now you're a patient. If you're helping somebody else deal with their sickness, now you're a caretaker. So you can kind of become like almost any facet of identity that you can imagine that you've ever experienced. But that becoming is a very dynamic thing. So whenever you're being this, you're no longer being that, right? So who are you? You know, if you become a caretaker, are you still a victim? You know, if you become a parent, are you still a child? Well, you can see the dynamic uh, coming and going of this aspect called bawo or becoming, uh, as in real time as your practice proceeds. And then you can you can also then you'll immediately begin to see how bawo always leads to birth. Like taking on an identity and, and cling, sort of holding on to that. And that any kind of a birth, if you become a doctor, eventually you'll also become either a, a dead doctor or a retired doctor or a, a failed doctor or you'll become something other than that, right? No identity is, is permanent. It can't be held on to. So uh, you'll see that inherent in becoming something is also taking on the death of that something simultaneously. They're not separable. And that will make the lure of being things a lot less problematic. This is how you disentangle yourself. This is what freedom's all about. This is what the Buddha is pointing to when he talks about Nibbana, freedom, cessation, calming, peace, bliss. The, you know, the, there's so many synonyms for uh, what, what we call enlightenment, um, most of them have that quality. He calls it the unaging, the unailing, the unborn, the the, the wonderful, the, the 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 most peaceful. He goes on and on and on about how great it is, and it's, it's basically because you're no longer causing so much trouble for yourself. All the suffering is a mental act. Right? So just you learn how to teach yourself how to stop doing that, and. Dependent origination can be a very kind of powerful metaphor or uh, framework for examining your experience to see how one thing is related to another. So you're kind of looking in that direction. How, how, and what am I experiencing right now? You know, what, you're kind of in the back of your mind if you know about dependent origination. You're kind of like, okay, so and why is this happening rather than something else? That question will always point out to the the causal conditions that this moment is springing out of. 
So I hope that uh, I covered some ground there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll do uh, just a little bit more chanting and we'll close. So we'll, do, we'll close with a closing homage, which is on page, I'm going to say, 36 minutes? 16? Well, evening closing homage. 28. We'll take it 29. And this involves involves some bowing. And we're bowing right now. We're um, you could say we're we're humbling the proud the proud self to something which is worthy of veneration, which is this teaching and this uh, the memory of the teacher and uh, the inspiration of those who've practiced and and know what they're talking about. So, um, we're not worshiping them. So, don't think of this idolatry.